From member-supported Colorado Public Radio, this is Since Columbine. I'm Andrea Dukakis. And I'm Nathaniel Miner. Megan Storm wasn't even born in 1999, but what happened at Columbine High School affects her anyway. Like a few months ago, Megan expected to have a normal, or just slightly better than normal, day. She was home outside Orlando. Um, I woke up and I went to school, and it was, it was a nice day. <laughs> Megan's dad, David Storm, tried to make it a special day. Her mother and I had bought balloons for her to be delivered at the school. It was Megan's 16th birthday. Yeah, it was my 16th birthday. It wasn't anything spectacular, but like I was just going to go home and like eat cake and open presents and stuff. She went to classes at Lake Brantley High School. Her fourth period was AP Music Theory. And someone came on the announcements and he told us that there was a code red and he said, this is not a drill. And so we all walked into the locker room and hid behind a locker. The teacher followed the school's procedures and turned out the lights. It was just really quiet, and we all huddled together. In other classes, I heard that some people were, like, texting their family or um, crying and stuff. Then Megan heard some noises. There were loud thuds and bangs and... Yeah, that that did sound like gunshots or people knocking on the door. Then after the announcement, I was pretty convinced that since I was in the room that was closest to the entrance of the school, that we were going to be first. Megan was pretty sure this was it. Uh, I thought I was going to die. And I don't know, for some reason I thought I should call the police, but I like that wouldn't have helped anything. And then another announcement. He told us that it had been a drill. And um, then class just sort of resumed. Turns out the sounds Megan heard were just construction. She went home at the end of the day, but she couldn't just move on. She got off the bus and just immediately broke down and told this tale of thinking it was the end. Megan and some of her friends didn't go back to school the next day. I was, like, scared that something was going to happen now, probably more than I was before. You know, we hand over the safeguard and caregiving of our, the most precious people in our lives to the schools, and they have to honor that. And uh, in this day, it was a real failure. David Storm says since then, the school and the local sheriff's department have tried to learn lessons from the drill to make sure they're now done in a way that doesn't cause unnecessary trauma. In the 20 years since Columbine, schools have changed a lot. Locked doors, metal detectors, bulletproof glass, and lockdown drills. And it's largely up to state and local governments to decide what kind of drills they want to do. Not every school drill goes as badly as the one Megan Storm experienced. But some parents, like her dad David, worry drills do more harm than good. Most kids in America will never be shot at in school. So some parents wonder, why are we traumatizing them for something that probably won't happen? And there's another problem. We don't really know if they even work, if they even help save lives in the event of a real attack. 
This is Since Columbine, a podcast from Colorado Public Radio about how one shooting 20 years ago changed America. In this episode, active shooter drills. We go from Florida to Colorado to upstate New York to try to answer the big question. Does practice make perfect when it comes to school safety? get things started. Can you hear me back there? Okay? Right now, we're going to take you to what used to be an elementary school in suburban Denver. It's now a training center. Dozens of school administrators from around the country are here to learn about school security. They're listening to John Michael Keyes. I'm going to start by saying howdy. It is an honor and privilege to be here today, and thank you all. For the issue is the personal for Keyes. His daughter was killed in a school shooting outside of Denver in 2006. He named this organization after one of the last text messages he got from her. Emily sent this message back. I love you guys. The I Love You Guys Foundation started in the years after Emily's death, when Keyes quit his job as a software engineer. I woke up one day and said, what am I doing? This has no meaning. Keyes wanted to come up with a new school safety program, but there were already several out there. There's avoid, deny, defend. Under that system, students should run, basically do anything they can to get away from the attacker. Or Alice, which trains students to actually attack a gunman if necessary. And so I ask Keyes, why try to rewrite the rules? The question reveals the answer in the sense there was all of this stuff. And uh, uh, shared language between students, staff, and first responders didn't exist. Under his system, teachers and students get very specific directions. So in a lockdown drill, kids are told locks, lights, out of sight. That is, lock the classroom doors, turn out lights, get out of sight. And the school administrators are here for two days of instruction and motivational stories from people like A.J. DeAndrea from the Arvada Police Department. If it happens, if it's your given day, I want you to dig deep and know that you're prepared and do your part so that you can save lives. Ian Wolf is in the audience. He works for Oklahoma City Public Schools, and he's responsible for the safety of tens of thousands of students in his district. He says it's tough deciding which program to go with. There are a lot of companies that want to sell you an answer to all your problems. You know, they they come to you with this package and say, if you buy this, it will fix everything. John Michael Key's program, the Standard Response Protocol, it's free. They just charge for these trainings. But I ask Wolf, how do you know the program actually works? Does it really help keep kids safe? Unfortunately, a lot of the evidence is anecdotal. Uh, And so there's not a lot of hard data to go off of. This is where a lot of news stories about school safety drills end. We don't really know if they work or not. The organizations behind these programs and some school districts, they have done some research. But as far as academic peer-reviewed data, it doesn't exist. So we tried to find out if anyone was doing something. We went to upstate New York, and we followed a researcher who's leading an effort to try to fill that void. Right there. And, okay, we got three floors, right? Okay, where's the most classrooms, first or second? Okay, all right, everybody good? It's go time for Jacqueline Schildkraut and her crew. We're at a school in Syracuse. She's an associate professor of criminal justice at State University of New York, Oswego. The school district here wanted to improve how it practiced drills. At the same time, Schildkraut was looking for a district to study. 
So they got together. She's done these drills at about 30 schools here. We tag along with her to two of them. And we saw that training little kids is a lot different than high schoolers. And as we wait for the first drill, I have this weird feeling. It's just a drill, but I feel pressure and tension, like I'm sort of stressed. I think that's because the kids are expecting a normal day, but we know they're about to get a big surprise. And the principal is certainly not expecting Childkraut when she walks into his office and asks him to put the school on lockdown. Can you read that right now, please? Hi, it's Mr. When are we doing this? Right now. Right this second? Right this second. All righty. Did I miss something? Nope. All right. Okay. This is a lockdown drill. Locks, lights, out of sight. This is a drill. Lockdown drill. Locks, lights, out of sight. The kids and the teachers know the drill. In just a few seconds, they disappear. Doors close and lights go out. Shilkraut walks down a hallway with a clipboard and stops at a classroom door. No one is supposed to come and open the door. The kids and the teacher have locked themselves in. Shilkraut waits a few beats and then uses a master key. It's dark. The kids and teacher are hiding. I can't see a thing. You guys are all set. Go ahead and remain in lockdown until you hear the all clear. Thank you. What you have just participated in was a lockdown drill. This drill is to help you be prepared. So, I mean, the drill ended, and honestly, I was really surprised at how smoothly it went. I mean, everyone seemed pretty calm about the whole thing. Nate, no offense, but you don't have kids. These little kids were waiting in the dark for a long time, and it upset me to see them huddled in a classroom. And what surprised me was how real it felt. It felt real, but... It wasn't real, and the kids knew that. I mean, think about the drill we heard about from Megan Storm in Florida. This was nothing like that. That's true. Other drills we found out have the sounds of gunfire, they have smoke, and it really can traumatize the kids. Shilkraut decided not to do those. We don't bring in law enforcement. We don't bring in ammunition or simulation ammunition or anything like that. You know, our goal is to see that they know what to do. And and we don't necessarily think that causing them that sort of extra anxiety at this point is the way to go. On our way to the high school, Shilkraut worries the kids won't take the drills seriously. I did a training last week where I'm literally like, I need you guys to be quiet because I would like you to go home in one piece and not in a body bag. And they thought that was funny. Because it's certainly not funny for Shellkraut. She grew up near Parkland, Florida. Her brother went to Stoneman Douglas High School. The Virginia Tech massacre in 2007 pushed her to get back into school and pursue criminology. She even wrote a book about Columbine's legacy. I've, you know, made a lot of connections to survivors of various shootings, whether it was Columbine, Aurora, um, you know, and others. And when it becomes your own community, it becomes very, very personal. And that's why she ends up getting pretty frustrated at the high school. The second drill hits some glitches. Kids in the cafeteria aren't doing exactly what they're supposed to. How's it going so far? Um, you know, some concerns that we can see a lot of the people in this room um, and that the doors aren't locked. Principal Donna Formica is angry. We can see you, we can see you. 
After the drill, Shokrat tells the principal that too many of the staff members don't know what's going on. Um, but staff have to be a part. You got your IT people. Like, they are part of the school, so they yeah, have to you be know part what? of that. that. That was my fault. No, 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 that's Because okay. when I put the announcement out, I didn't include IT. I didn't. I didn't. Shokrat says every drill is a learning experience. And she'll add her data from today to the collection she's built over the last six months. We have statistics on every school building um, in terms of what percentage of rooms were locked down properly, what percentage had their doors locked or their lights off. Her theory is that lockdowns can slow down a gunman. If lights go out and doors are locked, the perpetrator will have fewer opportunities to do damage before police arrive. Of course, there are lots of intangibles here. How do you really know for sure anything works unless something really bad happens? Tom Ristoff works closely with Shilkrout. He's the Syracuse district's head of safety, and he knows an actual attack would be chaotic. As long as folks are confident and they know what to do and they've been through a drill before, they will revert back to that muscle memory. This is what I did last time. This is what I'm going to do. And by doing more and more drills, they will feel more confident and then we hope subsequently respond more appropriately. And that's what Schildkraut hopes too. She's repeating the drills again and again through the school year. And she's also surveyed more than 10,000 middle and high schoolers in the district, asking questions on how safe and prepared they felt. Eventually, she'll submit her work to peer-reviewed journals, and then it would be available to any school district that wants it in the country, ones trying to make the tough decision about how to keep kids safe. Being a student in America today is far different than it was before Columbine. And while mass shootings in schools are rare, they happen enough that going to school can be scarier now. Shilkraut understands that problem, but she also sees a solution. And while I may only be one person, I really believe that I can make a difference. And whether it's Syracuse or it's the entire United States, like I believe that we can help keep kids safer. It hurts her to think about the 17 people in Parkland who didn't go home to their families. And if it takes tough love or it takes teaching moments or it takes coming down on their administrators or whatever needs to be done, like they have to understand the seriousness of this, that not one more really means not more. And maybe that doesn't mean not one more to everybody, but it does to me. You do take this very personally. It's devastation I wouldn't wish on anybody. Schildkraut says the kids who go through these drills probably won't ever be in a school shooting. But they could be caught up in gang violence or some other more common danger. It's not just schools that have changed since Columbine, she says. It's the whole world. And that doesn't mean kids and parents should be afraid. She says it means they should be prepared. Thanks for listening to Since Columbine. Our next episode will be out later this week. And please support our work. Recommend this podcast to a friend and visit CPR.org to become a member. This episode of Since Columbine was reported by Nathaniel Minor and Andrea Dukakis. It was edited by Rachel Estabrook with help from Kevin Dale. John Pinnell produced and mixed the episode, Music by Blue Dot Sessions. Since Columbine is a production of Colorado Public Radio.